0: Well, good evening. My name is Ken and uh, let's see, and I'll be reading from the Old Testament found in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 through 14. As I continued to watch this night vision of mine, I suddenly saw one like a human coming with heavenly clouds. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. Rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. It will never pass away. His kingship is indestructible. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelations chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. I turned to see who was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning On top of seven gold stands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the human one. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a gold sash around his chest, the word of the Lord. If you're able to stand, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5 through 9. While he was still speaking, look, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I dearly love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anybody about the vision until the human one is raised from the dead. The gospel of our Lord.
1: To our Lord Christ. Amen. Thank you, Ken. All right, would you please remain standing with me as we pray tonight? Father God, we come before you tonight as your people, gathered in your name and in your presence to listen to your word. So by your spirit, would you speak to us, that by the end of our time opening the scriptures, we might see none but Jesus. That we might see him clearly. That we might see him high and lifted up. That he might once again be revealed to us fresh and new. And that our lives might change. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Great to see you. You may go and have a seat. Great to see you, those of you who are here tonight and those of you who are watching online, it's great for you to be able to join kind of this way through technology. We miss you. We love you. We see you as best we can kind of in this place. Uh, real quick update before we get started tonight. Uh, as you know, over the last couple weeks, we've been praying for Pastor Glenn as he has a non-cancerous polyp on his vocal cord. He goes in for an important doctor's meeting tomorrow. So please just be praying for God's healing and strength and wisdom. Uh, to come to him in that meeting. We're just hoping and praying uh, for a great report uh, in that time tomorrow. We have certain experiences that happen to us in life that change the way we see. A lot of the change that happens in our lives happens sort of slowly and beneath the surface, and it's easy for us to miss or not see, but there are moments, there are experiences that we have that sort of immediately open up our eyes and we see things differently from that point on. There's been a number of those moments in my life. One of them came in January of 2009, Sarah and I—Sarah was pregnant with uh, with our baby, and we were heading in for that 20-week doctor's appointment. And we're we're planners, so we were the kind of people that were going to find out. Like we, we couldn't wait until the baby was born to decide, is, to learn, is this a boy or is this a girl? We needed to find out right then and there so we could get all of our plans in place. And so we go in for the ultrasound, and the tech is there, and, you know, they ask the question like, do you want to know? And we're like, yes, tell us, please. We've been waiting 20 weeks, and we absolutely need to know. And she looked at us, and she said, you're having a girl, I'm now the dad of three daughters, but it was that day that I started seeing the world differently. I started seeing the world as a girl dad. I, I remember the moment it really, really hit me. It was probably a week or two later, I was at the mall for some reason. I don't know why I was at the mall. And I'm the kind of guy that if I have to go to the mall, I go to the closest entrance to the place I have to go, and I get in and I get out as quickly as I possibly can. And I walk into the mall, and suddenly I'm seeing things that I've never seen before, and I having responses that I've never had before. It's prom dress season. And I was praying my whole way through. I was oh, dear Lord, how am I going to parent a teenage girl? Lord, help me. It changed the way I see. I, I cannot go to the mall in the same way anymore since that day. John, in our passage today, has one of these experiences. He has an experience that forever changes the way that he sees. This is week two in our sermon series called The Last Word. where We're walking through the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, that strange book with all of the visions of creatures and dragons and horsemen and a harlot and battles and fiery lakes. And you're going, what is this thing? And it's that book that we tend to have two opposite responses to. Some of us, we hear this book and and it just fascinates us. It captures us and we obsess over it trying to crack the code that might be within it. And others are like, I do not know what to do with this. And so we don't read it. We avoid it. We stay away from it. Last week, though, we tried to start to grab some handles onto how are we supposed to read this book? What are we supposed to do with this? And we recognize that the book describes itself right off as two things. It describes itself as apocalypse and as prophecy. As apocalypse, the word actually means to unveil, to uncover. That the point and the purpose of the book is not to hide things from us. And not to keep things hidden in the shadows or in the dark, or not to hide things from everyone except for a few key people that have some sort of special insight, but it's actually supposed to unveil and uncover, and specifically, it is a revelation or apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's meant to reveal Jesus to us, that we might see Jesus and see everything through Jesus. This is the hope of the book, is to unveil and reveal Christ to us. As prophecy, it's a book that contains not actually a whole set of predictions, but it functions as a proclamation a proclamation of who Jesus is and what God has done in and through him, and what God is continuing to do, and what God is going to do. And our role is to hear that proclamation and then respond to it faithfully, to respond faithfully to the one who is being proclaimed. Today, we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And if you want to turn to your Bibles there, you can follow along on the screens. And here we have John capturing his first vision of Jesus. It's the first of actually seven visions of Christ that John is going to write down throughout this letter. In the Jewish world, you remember that we talked about this a bit last week, numbers are symbolic. And the number seven oftentimes gives the sense of something that's whole or complete. Something that has been finished, something that is full. So what the book intends to do is give us a whole or complete Picture of who Jesus is. And this is the first of seven pictures of Jesus that we're going to get throughout the book. And it begins this way He says, I, John, your brother who shares with you in the hardship. The word is often uh, translated as tribulation, who shares with you in the hardship, who shares with you in the kingdom, and who shares with you in the endurance that we have in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. And I was in a spirit-inspired trance. The original language just says, I was in the spirit, and we're always going like, well, what does that mean? And so your different translations might say different things about translating that phrase. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. And it said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania and in Laodicea. And it goes on and says, I turned to see who was speaking to me and when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven gold stands. And in the middle of the lamp stands, I saw someone who looked like the human one. I saw someone who looked like the human one. Here's John on this island in the Mediterranean, not on a Mediterranean island vacation like many of us are kind of thinking about right now, but imprisoned and exiled because of his faith and his ministry, his faith and his witness to Jesus. He finds himself on this island, physically isolated from his faith community, physically isolated from these seven churches that he likely oversees as their pastor. And what we all know is that what can oftentimes happen when we're physically isolated, when we find ourselves distanced From our community, and we find because of that distance, all of our rhythms disrupted. What can often happen in those times is that all we can begin to see is the differences between us and them, and we can find that it's really hard to continue in our practices. That distance has this way of sort of highlighting differences and causing us to discontinue the things that we have always been doing. We've all struggled with that over the last five or six months as our lives have been disrupted as we find ourselves distant. But listen to what John says in the middle of that. He stresses not the differences, but their commonality says, I, John, your brother, I share with you in this hard time and I share with you in the kingdom and I share with you in faithful, patient endurance. I am with you in this. And he continues in the practices that the church would be doing even though he can't be there. He joins them in the spirit on the Lord's day. In the New Testament, in the spirit is often described as praying in the spirit and singing in the spirit. I think this is what John's doing. It's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. The church is gathered together to do what? To sing and to pray and to read the scriptures, to do the things the church always does on Sunday. And John says, even though I'm in exile, even though I'm in prison, even though I'm distant from the people that I want to be with, even though I can't be in the place that I want to be or the people I want to be with, I'm going to do what I've always done and join the people that I love in doing the thing that they're doing right now. I'm going to sing. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship on the Lord's day. He's physically separated, but he prioritizes what they hold in common and prioritizes their common practices as the church. And as he's doing this, he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. Later on, he'll describe this voice as a voice that sounded like rushing water. And you're like, okay, wait a minute, John, which one is it? <laughs> is it a trumpet or is it rushing water? Which one is it? Because obviously when we Revelation, it can only be one thing, right? That's what we've always been taught. <laughs> No, John is really fluid here with his language. He's trying to describe what it is that he is seeing and experiencing. All throughout the book of Revelation, we'll find approximate language. It's John's attempt to try to write down on paper an overwhelming, immersive experience. John is seeing things all around him. He's hearing things coming from all kinds of directions. He's smelling things. He's been caught up in this vision of Christ, and then he's told to write it down. (laughs) And he's doing the best that he possibly can. Imagine trying to describe to someone what falling in love is like. How do you do that? Like, put it down in paper. How do you describe... Those feelings and those emotions and those experiences and that, like, Stuff that goes on in your stomach when you're trying to think about asking that person out, or the stuff that's going on you're thinking, is that person going to ask me out? And all of the drama around getting ready for the first date. And all of the phone calls to family members and to friends, and the things that you're writing down, and all of the emotions about, okay, what do I order, what do I not order? Will this make my breath smell bad? Or will it not make my breath smell bad? What am I going to do? Where are we going to go? And all of the things that are happening in the middle of that. This is the kind of experience John's having. So he leans on metaphors. And he leans on metaphors that are common for his people, that are common for his day, that are common for the Jewish people. And it's, le- it's approximate language that's also highly symbolic. So when he says there's a voice that sounds like a trumpet, immediately for his readers, they're like, wait a minute. We know another time that there was a voice that sounded like a trumpet. Oh, yeah, it was at Sinai when God visited and God spoke. He's setting them up saying, say, you know what this was like? This was kind of like Sinai. That's the best way to kind of explain it. It was a divine encounter of God showing up in the midst of the most unlikely place. And he goes and he says this. He says, I turned to see who was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on the top of seven gold stands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the human one. The first thing that John sees is Jesus's position. The first thing he sees is where Jesus is at. Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. He's surrounded by seven oil lamps that are sitting on gold stands. Later, John will tell us that these stands represent the seven churches, which we said last week represent the entirety of the church, the whole church by these seven. But it also recalls for us the seven branch lampstand that sits in the temple, in, this, in the midst of God's presence, where people go to meet with and worship God. And where does he see Jesus? He sees Jesus at the center of everything. He sees Jesus at the center of it all. He sees that Jesus is the center of it all. See, here in his exile, And in the church's hard times, in its tribulation, John sees Jesus at the center. He sees Jesus in the midst of the church and the church in the presence of Jesus. Jesus right in the middle of everything that's going on and the church right in the midst of the very presence of God. See, for John in this moment, he recognizes the controlling center of everything that is happening is Jesus it's not Rome and it's not Caesar he's not in the middle of all this and the church is not in the middle of all this without Christ wondering where is Jesus Jesus is at the very center of all that they are experiencing Jesus is at the center not the church's oppressors but the church's savior is who he sees in the middle See, friends, Jesus is not absent, he is not distant, and he is not peripheral from, our, from us in our suffering. He is not distant, he is not absent, and he is not sidelined when we are going through difficult times, but instead he is present at the very center. To be our centering and sustaining presence in the middle of all that we're going through. See, whatever you find yourself facing right now, whatever hardship has come to you, whether that be because of COVID-19, whether that be because of ongoing things in the economy, whether that be from jobs, whether that be relationships, whether it be something going on with your marriage or with your kids, whether it's something going on beyond that, Jesus is not absent or distant or sidelined. He's present with you, right in the center of it all. So but at times, we can't see him. What's really fascinating to me about this vision is that John has to turn around to see Jesus. The voice comes from behind him. He's in the spirit. He's on the Lord's day. He's doing all the right things in all the right ways at all the right times. And he still has to turn around to see. I think there are times that we can't see Jesus because we're looking in the wrong direction. So we oftentimes expect Jesus to come to us from one direction in one way. That we expect like Jesus is always gonna come this way. And if Jesus is gonna come, he's gonna come like this or he's gonna come like that. And so we fix our eyes kind of in that one space and we say, well, if God's gonna come, if God's gonna show up, then he's gonna to have to do it this way. It can only be in this way. We expect Jesus to come in this sort of isolated framework. But Jesus is constantly in the habit of surprising us. <laughs> I think he enjoys it, just to be honest with you. We expect him to come one way, and instead he comes to us in the ways that we least expect it, at times in the ways that we least want him to come to us, times in ways that it's easy for us to miss or even dismiss and explain it away as something else. I think for me, one of those big moments came kind of early in my time with Christ, expecting that coming into faith was going to eliminate all hard things in life. Came to faith in a really difficult time and very early on sort of grasped on to like, well, because of Jesus, now all of these hard things are gonna go away. That because I'm now a follower of Jesus, I'll be delivered from all suffering. And instead had to realize, no, Jesus was coming into me in the midst of all of those things. And Jesus was sustaining me in the midst of those things, and Jesus was healing me and comforting me and giving me mercy in the midst of all of those things, not taking me out of them. But I couldn't see it as I needed to turn around. See, revelation as an entire book, actually calls us to turn. It requires a turning inside of us. Oftentimes that turning is a repentance. It's a way of saying, oh, wait a second. My life has actually been decentered. I've put someone or something at the center other than Jesus, and I need to repent and turn and put Jesus back at the center. Sometimes it's a change of thinking, it's a change of theology, it's a change of our beliefs about who Jesus is. But Jesus constantly reveals to himself as the one who's at the center. This is the first thing John sees. The second thing John sees is Jesus's appearance. He sees him at the center and then begins to describe who he sees. He says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the human one. And he wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a gold sash around his chest, and his head and hair were white as wool. No, like snow. Again, searching for words, and his eyes were like a fiery flame, and his feet were like fine brass or bronze that has been purified in a furnace, and his voice sounded like rushing water, and he held seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his appearance was like the sun shining with all its power." Imagine seeing Jesus this way. It looks like the human one, or maybe your translation says the son of man. This is the title that Jesus frequently uses of himself, and the gospel comes from our Old Testament reading in Daniel 7, where Daniel sees someone who's unmistakably human and yet unmistakably more than human as well. And he's trying to describe him. He's like, it's like a son of man, a human one. And he says, this is the one to whom is given an everlasting rule and an indestructible kingdom. And John's saying, you know what? I think I'm seeing the same thing that Daniel saw. I think this is who I'm seeing. And he's wearing a robe with a gold sash, which is a reminder of the clothing worn by Old Testament kings and priests. Just no surprise, because John has just called the church a kingdom of priests. And so here we see Jesus, the king over his kingdom, and the high priest over his priests, gathered together in his presence and says, his hair and his head were like wool or like snow, reminding us of the purity of Jesus. And his eyes were like fire, reminding us not only is Jesus pure, but Jesus is purifying that seeing him actually changes us. See, what what John sees is that Jesus is the pure and purifying high priest who forgives us of our sins and forges us into his image. And this is who John is seeing, the one who is able to both pardon us and purge us to justify us and to sanctify us. The one who's able to, f- to forgive us of our greed and actually turn us into generous people. The one who's able to forgive us and free us from our anger and our vengefulness and our violence and our hatred and actually teach us, make us patient and peaceful and loving people. He sees that Jesus who's able to do both to forgive and to forge us into his image. And he goes on and he sees that his feet are bronze, which is a combo of iron and copper, both strong and lasting. Incredibly important metal at this time. And what he's doing here is he's contrasting the description that's given of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two, whose feet are of iron and clay, That's actually unable to bond and unable to stand. It's built on a whose kingdom is built on a faulty foundation. So, no, 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 this king, his foundation is strong and lasting. And he's holding in his hand seven stars that we're told later on represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Let me tell you right now, just really quickly, the seven angels are actually not. Uh, angelic beings that are being talked about. The word angel can also be talked about, as uh, can be uh, translated as messenger. And there was a person in each of these churches who is described as the messenger of the church. They were the person that took the prayers of the people and brought them to God during the service. So the one who prays is the one who actually receives the message and then gets to share it with the church. That's what's happening here in this vision. But he's holding in his hand the seven churches. In his right hand, which symbolizes this is his power, and this is what he's using to bring about his plans and his purposes in the world. God is holding the church, and he's using the church to bring about his plans and his purposes in the world. And it says his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus doesn't come as one with a typical sword, but word, speech that is like a sword, that's sharp and incisive and effective, And his appearance is like the sun shining with all of its power. Reminds us of that transfiguration scene in the gospels. See, John sees Jesus as the high priest. He also sees him as the all-powerful king who reigns eternally over an insurmountable and indestructible kingdom. This is who he's seen as the high priest and the all-powerful king who reigns eternally over an insurmountable and indestructible kingdom. This is why the book of Revelation forever has been a source of hope and comfort and joy for the persecuted church, for the church that finds itself on the underside of power, for the church that finds itself marginalized and oppressed, for the church that finds itself at risk of death because of their faith in Jesus Christ, John sees the vision that says, you know what? There is no empire. There is no evil. There is no person. There is no power. There is no system. There is no experience in this life that is greater than the power of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more lasting than his kingdom. He's proclaiming the power and the unending kingdom of God to the church in persecution. And guess what John does when he sees this? When he sees Jesus as the high priest, as the all-powerful king says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He collapses. And then Jesus puts his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last and I'm the living one. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and always. And by the way, I have the keys of death in the grave. They have been defeated. See, the very presence, the very sight of Jesus humbles us. His awesome presence brings us to our knees. See, in the presence of Jesus, the people of God were meant to bow. When we see Jesus, we're meant to bow. This is what this book does it unveils Jesus to us and then implores us and invites us to worship him no matter what's going on in our lives. This book calls us to turn around and see Jesus at the center. To see Jesus as the high priest who reconciles us to God. and To see him as the true king who reigns over everything that's going on in the world and our lives. And then when we see Jesus at the center and we see him as the high priest and the king to fall on our face in prayer and in worship, to bend our knee to the true king and his unending kingdom. In the presence of Jesus, we are meant to bow. John sees Jesus and he falls on his face like a dead man. See, submission to Jesus is actually a death act. It's a kind of dying. It's a dying to ourself. It's a dying to our compulsion to place ourselves at the center of everything. It's a dying to our futile attempts to reconcile ourselves to God by look at all the things that I'm going to do, and instead to embrace His mercy and to submit to His purifying work in our lives. It's a dying to our vain attempts to control our world, to rule our lives to set our own course of action, but instead to submit to the king. So submission is a kind of dying. Worship is a kind of dying. But here's the good news. In Christ, death is always followed by resurrection. In Christ, Death is always followed by resurrection. So here, John, he falls flat on his face in worship. He submits his entire life in the midst of what he's going to. And he calls the church to submit their entire lives to this one Jesus. He falls flat on his face and Jesus comes out to him. He sets his right hand on him, that powerful hand the hand that's able to bring about all of his plans and his purposes in the world. He sets his hand on him. And he says to John the same thing he said after the Mount of Transfiguration when the disciples fell down as well before him. And he goes to them and he says, get up. Don't be afraid. Get up. Don't be afraid. Afraid. Get up. Don't be afraid. For I am alive and I have already won. Don't be afraid. For I am alive and I have already won. See, whatever we're facing, whatever we're facing, that thing is going to come to an end. That thing, that person, that power, that experience, that thing that you're walking through right now, it has a terminus to it. But Jesus is the living one, and his kingdom has no end, and he has already won. We're not experiencing the fullness of that yet, but one day... Jesus will come in final victory and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our invitation is to get to do that now. To live now like it's going to be in the future. To live now, not in fear, but to get up and to know the one who is already one. Amen. This would be the time in our service where normally we would get a chance to come to the table, to come and to feast with the one who's already one. For those of you who are watching at home, you get to. You've got your crackers, your bread, your juice, whatever you've got there with you. For those of us that are gathered here, welcome to a global pandemic where one of the scarcest items on the planet are ready to eat communion wafers. I don't know. We have 20,000 units for all of our congregations on back order several weeks now. I don't know when they're coming, but I do know this that we get to come at this moment, even in singing, into the very presence of God to recognize that He is here with us. We're going to sing a song called The Table. For those of you who are watching online, this would be a great time for you to receive communion. For those of you who are here in the room, just encourage you when you go home tonight, But those that you live with, those that are family or friends, or maybe even on your own, to grab some juice, grab some crackers, share communion together, or maybe share communion just with you in Christ, knowing that He is there with you, even when you might feel most alone. But tonight, would you stand? We're gonna come and we're gonna sing. Singing is one of the ways that we express, yes, Jesus is already one. And the table, this song is a reminder of that. A reminder that we've been forgiven and that we've been purified by the high priest and that we can trust the one whose kingdom never ends. Let's sing together tonight.